Amen, amen. Thank you, choir. I love to hear y'all sing. What a beautiful song that was. Thank you, Nathan, for leading us in worship so well today. And you do such a good job uh, preparing uh, us for worship every week and putting together such a great order of service every week. And Nathan also does the choreography for the dancing in First Kids Worship. And uh, man, how he gets it all done in a week plus a day job, I'll never know. But uh, I just want to make sure everyone knows, Woody spoke a little out of turn earlier. I want to make it clear that that's Baptist dancing that happens. Uh, it's not any other sort, only the Baptist kind. So just know that that's the case. And if, if uh, anyone was offended by that, just get with me after the service and I'll give you Woody's email address. <laughs> and, uh, and his cell phone number if you'd like that too. So... Uh, <laughs> you have your Bibles, open up to Psalm 90, the 90th Psalm, one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible, certainly one of my favorite Psalms, if not my favorite. I've spent a lot of time over the last several years uh, reflecting on the Psalm, and I'm excited uh, to preach it uh, today to you. Uh, As you're opening there to, to the 90th Psalm, if you don't have your own copy of God's Word, that's okay, grab a pew Bible there in front of you and open it up to page 683 there in the pew Bible. As you're opening up there, I just want to say how grateful I was for the way you all came to Revival this week. Uh, it was just so great to have a good crowd here every night, to enjoy some good preaching for a change, and to really have a good time together in the Lord. My hope and my prayer is it's preparing our hearts uh, as we go into the Easter season to invite people to be here um, for Easter. Well, if you've got your Bibles open there, I want you to go ahead and stand with me out of reverence of the reading of the words of our God. The psalmist writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God Himself is speaking to you. Beginning in verse 1. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, 
How long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's pray together. Oh Lord our God, We thank you for this opportunity we have to gather with your people and to hear your word. And God, this morning, would you let us be changed by the power of your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. When Whitney and I were newlyweds, my ministry assistant at the church I served at the time uh, gave me a huge, two or three, I think, gallon-sized bags of blueberries, fresh blueberries. She actually picked them at her dad's house. So they're these really fresh, really good blueberries down in Mobile. We were excited to have them. Excited, I was really excited about eating blueberries. I, I didn't really realize what I had in my hands there, honestly. Um, I probably could have resold those things and made a fortune. Uh, my boys love blueberries now, and you basically need a second mortgage to buy a pint of those things. I mean, they're just really expensive fruit. So man, we had just this just this huge amount of blueberries. So we decided, what are you going to do with all these blueberries? You don't just want to pop blueberries all day, every day. So we've got to come up with something to do with all these blueberries. And so Whitney had a great idea. It was an idea I was on board with. In fact, she had that idea today. I'd be on board with it today. And it was to make homemade blueberry muffins with these beautiful blueberries. We were so excited about it. And uh, Whitney was budding in her domesticity, you know, she's loving uh, being a young wife and really enjoying uh, doing things in the kitchen. And so it's just a big day for everybody involved because uh, I was going to be on the receiving end of this and I was excited about it. And so I was kind of stalking her as she made them. You know how it is, guys or, or, or ladies, when your spouse makes something delicious and you kind of come around, want to see it, see what's going on, and you're excited about it, you smell it. And then we put them in the oven, and the smell of these muffins just fills the whole house. And, man, it just smells delicious. And, you know, in the heat, those blueberries kind of bust open inside the muffins. And so the whole house smells like blueberries. It's just delicious. I'm excited. Just can't wait. Finally, I'm pacing back and forth, excited about these muffins, looking forward to these muffins. And finally, they're done. Finally, they're cool enough to eat. And I grabbed one, and I took a gigantic bite. And the sensation that I experienced could not have been further from the sensation I expected. It, it was not. I mean, they looked like something from the cover of a magazine. They were just beautiful. They may have tasted like something from the cover of the magazine because it tasted like somebody had made it out of clay. Now listen, these muffins were bitter. Bitter. My wife's an excellent cook. She really is. I mean, she can cook anything. Some of you have maybe tried some bread she makes. She's just great. But this was the day where I guess because I wouldn't leave her alone about these muffins, she left out the sugar from the recipe. And there's a lot of things. All, all that stuff I tasted is in a sweet muffin too. Right? 
All, all that stuff that I, that I tasted that made, made me, and then finally she said, oh, no, what's wrong? And I said, here, you try it. And she's like, oh, that's awful, you know. And just so you know, ladies in the choir, I did get permission to share this story, okay? <laughs> I can see what's coming at me from over here, but just in case somebody, I just want to make sure the ones back here know I got permission. <laughs> but all the stuff's in there, you just can't tell why, because the sugar balances it out or overwhelms it, or, or it tastes good when it's in the right formula, but without the sugar, it just didn't taste right. It just wasn't good without the sugar. Imagine for a moment with me that God is baking a cake. And you're so eager for a slice of the cake that you decide you're going to get a taste. So you sneak in the kitchen. God's not looking. He knows. He really does have eyes in the back of his head. But just bear with me for a moment. Let's suspend reality. You sneak in, you grab a spoon, and you decide you're going to get a big taste of this cake. So you find whatever bowl you can find, and you dip your spoon in it and take a big bite out of it, and it's just pure raw flour. Mmm, delicious. No, it's terrible, right? Nobody's sitting around eating flour out of the bag. And if you are, get with me after the service, and I'll give you Woody's uh, email address, and you can set up some counseling. Or you grab your spoon, and it's baking soda. Or, or, or you grab your spoon, and it's just raw egg or vanilla extract. Or maybe it's something that tastes good, but you can't really eat very much of it, like pure sugar, just sugar or butter or whatever else. What if it's cocoa powder? It tastes really delicious in something, but not so good by itself. At any rate, it's unwise for us. It's not good. It's not enjoyable to separate out the parts from the whole. When we consider something like a cake, we recognize that it's better to be patient. To sit down and to wait until the cake is done. Instead of sneaking in there trying to get cake, wait until the cake is done. Wait until the Lord is done baking this fresh and beautiful cake. And He turns it out and it cools and He ices it. And He cuts you a slice and He puts it at the table. And then you enjoy what He's done. You see, I... I think that our tendency as Christians so often is to judge God and to judge what God is doing by the individual parts of our lives. That, that at this moment, it really feels bitter. Or, or at this moment, I know this is probably good for me, but it just doesn't taste very good. Or at this moment, we look at God and, man, right now, this, this week's sugar. And so we expect it ought to always be sugar. But we need to remember that God is taking all these individual parts of our lives and He's building us into and moving our lives towards something beautiful. He has a purpose. And not only is He doing that with us as individuals, God is doing that with all of creation, with all of history. God is baking a cake. You see, when it comes to our views of God's sovereignty, so often we obsess over the means. We obsess over the small individual things, but we so often forget the end. That God in His sovereignty is not just capriciously sovereign deciding, you know what, I'm going to stick Him in traffic today. You know what, 
dog's going to tear their stuff up today. You know what? This is going to happen there. This is going to happen there. That's often how we view God's sovereignty. But what we often miss is that God is using those means, these different things that He's doing, and He's orchestrating them in such a way that He's putting together a beautiful whole. God is building a tapestry out of all the aspects of our lives. Dark days, light days, in-between days, bitter moments, sweet moments. God is building something beautiful in the end. Our view of God's providence is the view that God is using His sovereignty to move things toward a goal or a purpose, a telos, an end. Providence is sovereignty that God is exerting and using to bring things toward a purpose. And we recognize as Christians that purpose is to unite all things perfectly under the reign and rule of His Son, Jesus Christ. This this morning I want to show you three ways that God is providentially guiding your life. I, I just want to show you three ways... That God is providentially guiding your life this morning. Here's the first thing. God guides us to humility. God guides us to humility. I I want you to look with me at verses 1 through 6. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Verse 1, let's focus on that for just a moment. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. There's a little bit of irony here in this opening verse. Just, Just a little bit of irony here in this opening verse. Just go with me back a little bit to some Old Testament history really quickly, and and let's think about what God promised Abraham. God, God promised Abraham that his descendants would be his people and that he and Abraham would be friends, that, they, that, that God would have a covenantal love for him and that they would have a unique relationship and then that, that unique relationship would apply to all of his offspring, that he would, they would be God's people. And God promised that he would be their God, that they would be under his rule. God's people, under God's rule, but he also made another promise, that they would be in God's place, a promised land. And the irony here is Moses says, Oh God, you have been our dwelling place. Is it more than likely this psalm was probably written? Well, no doubt it was written. When God's people were not in God's place. Right? If it was written in Egypt, which I'm doubtful, Moses was kind of busy in Egypt. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing it probably wasn't written in Egypt. But if it was, God's people are enslaved by Pharaoh. And though he is making them into a great people like he had promised Abraham, nonetheless, they're enslaved and they're not in God's place and seemingly not under God's rule. But more than likely, Moses wrote this in the wilderness. As God's people traveled around in the wilderness waiting to enter the promised land, what does Moses say? Oh Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. You see, they're living in the wilderness, but nonetheless, God is their dwelling place. They lived in Egypt, but nonetheless, God is their dwelling place. They were preparing. A lot of people think Moses wrote this probably during this same time as Deuteronomy. They're probably soon to enter the land that God had promised. 
But by His grace, even in the new land, God Himself would remain their dwelling place. You know, it's so humbling. Over the years of ministry, I've had to help people try to find housing. And it's, it's, it's humiliating for folks at times when they just can't find a place to live. Just can't provide for themselves a home, such a basic need. And here the totality of God's people are saying, Lord, the only place we have is you. You are our dwelling place. In fact, God was responsible for room and board because he fed them every day as well. Their most basic needs were totally and completely dependent on God. How humbling is it to know that tomorrow, if our circumstances were to change and we have nothing else, we would still have God as our dwelling place. How humbling is it to know that even for the material dwellings we have, we are totally and utterly dependent on God. We are humbled. We are humbled by our total dependence on God. But also, we're, we're humbled. God guides us to humility by pointing us to His unchanging nature. What does verse 2 say? Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. What do y'all plan to do as soon as you leave here today? What are y'all going to do? Y'all are closer. Eat lunch. There we go. Larry Furman's planning to eat lunch. Where are you going, Larry? You got plans? Don't know yet. That'll be a fight in the car, won't it? <laughs> if you're anything like us, right? I, we don't even know what we want sometimes. We, we, we don't even know what we think. We, we have a hard time keeping up with what we think and keeping our opinions straight. Some of mine and Whitney's worst fights in our marriage have been over stupid stuff that doesn't matter, like where are we going to go eat lunch? today i've been known to be real selfish after i get done preaching and say things like can you not just decide where we're going to go eat lunch and then if you'll just decide i'll go and i'll eat and i'll be happy you know what happens the next week when he says this is where we're going I say we really have to go there today we have a hard time keeping up with what we think we're keeping our opinions straight i have a hard time with being consistent with discipline and expectations as a father as a dad, from day to day, what I choose to care about can sometimes change. And that's not fair to my kids, but it's still something I struggle with. And for those of you parents who have done that perfectly, I'd love to get some advice. So just let me know. But we all struggle with that, right? With, with being consistent. But from everlasting to everlasting, God is God. From everlasting to everlasting, God is God. He doesn't change. God is always the same. And that ought to humble us as fickle, feeble people that from day to day, God is the same. Have you ever had somebody tell you how you're acting? Anybody ever had somebody tell you how you're acting? Isn't that fun, a funny thing to think about? The person we're closest to and that we ought to know the best, sometimes we know the least. And sometimes we need somebody to tell us, you know, you're really being a jerk. 
Whitney sometimes will come home from having dinner or something. She'll say, did you know that you talked the entire time? I said, they seem to be loving it. They weren't. They weren't. They were not loving it. We don't always know how we act. But God knows God so perfectly that God can say from everlasting to everlasting, from eternity past all the way into eternity future, I am God and I will not change. I am always the same. It says elsewhere in the Bible, I, the Lord your God, do not change. Therefore, you, O Israel, are not consumed. God is always the same. He's consistent. We're humbled by the fact that God is always God. But we're also humbled by the fact that God is eternal. You see, we're temporary. We're temporary. Our temporary, finite nature humbles us before God, who doesn't eat, who doesn't sleep, who doesn't grow weary, who doesn't grow tired. God is always God, and forever and ever He has been God, and forever and ever He will be God. And so we're humbled. We're humbled by God's overwhelming godness. By God's transcendence. The fact that God is other than us. He's not dependent on this world like we are. We're we're humbled by God's glory and majesty. By His tireless providential care. The Bible says He upholds the world by the word of His power. He leads and guides His people to humility. You know, humility is so good for us, but it it doesn't taste good. It doesn't taste good, but God's using it for something. He's doing something with it. Second point this morning is this. Second way that God providentially guides us is that God guides us through His judgment. God guides us through His judgment. Verses 7 through 11. Look look at it with me. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Think about this for just a moment. People in our world are very uncomfortable with the notion of hell. And I understand that. I completely understand hell is a very difficult doctrine. Probably the most difficult doctrine we hold to as Christians is the doctrine of the wrath of God. Ultimately, the doctrine of hell. But think about this for just a moment. For any of you in the room who have never put your trust and belief and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and for those of you in the room who delayed coming to know Jesus, like I did, ran from the Lord, for a while, until I was 20 years old. I didn't run out into the world, ran into the church, but nonetheless, it doesn't, doesn't save you. Think about this. The one thing that keeps any person at this very moment out of hell is God. And so we often think about just this horror of God sending people to hell, but think about all the patience and kindness that an infinitely holy God who lacks no power Lacks no power to do way with his enemies right now. Think about the patience and love that he expresses just by not sending us to hell at any given moment. By giving us further opportunity 
to repent. Here we are, alive. Many of us forgiven of our sins. And for those of us who aren't, we're able again to hear the gospel today. I want to ask you another question. What do you do with your own sins? You still sin if you're a Christian. Christian sin. So what do you do as a Christian with your own sins? How do you use those? What do you, what do, you do with them? Well, when, when you sin, I, I want to encourage you to be reminded of God's judgment and thereby reminded of His grace. I love verses 7 and 8. We're brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Now think about that. All the maladies of this world are a result of sin. And each and every time something happens in our life, each and every time we sin, we ought to be reminded of, the, of God's sovereignty. And we ought to be reminded of the fact that we deserve punishment for our sins, and yet God has not done that. Our sins should remind us of God's judgment. Let me ask you this question. Are you ever overwhelmed by your sin? What about this? Have you ever been convicted about something you didn't realize was a sin? Or have you ever had a sinful, sinful pattern in your life that you didn't even know was there? We should be reminded of the judgment of God in those moments. Our secret sins, the one even we don't know, ones we don't know about, are laid bare before God. We should be humbled, but we should also recognize His judgment and recognize that in God's providence, He's brought us through to the other side. We also see in verses 9 through 11, really frank and straight talk about death. All of our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. We might live 70 or 80 years, but then they're gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? You see, God's judgment and God's wrath and our own sin ought to lead us to trust and fear Him. Because God in His providence has chosen to bring us through His judgment. And you know, if, if this passage stopped here, we just had to reach up and get a spoonful of just this. Oh boy, it's bitter, isn't it? Isn't it bitter to consider the severity and justice of God? But brothers and sisters, God is doing something with it. God is at work. And that leads us to our last point this morning. Our third point is this. God guides us by His love. God guides us by his love. So teach us, verse 12, to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. That is, recognizing the brevity of life leads us to wisdom. And God in His love leads us to a humble place, and it leads us through His judgment to a place where we can then begin to have wisdom, thanks to His grace and thanks to His love. But then the psalmist begins, Moses begins to express another. Another heart attitude. What does he say? Verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad 
For as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. You see, God guides us by His love, and God's loving providence makes us and gives us hopeful patience. Hopeful patience. Gives us the ability to sit in the kitchen and to not know what's going on. And to trust that God is doing something beautiful in the, in the meantime. It gives us a hopeful patience. He asks the Lord to return. And then he says, in the morning, satisfy us with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. In other words, he's recognizing God's mercies are new every morning, every day. There is For Moses, both literally and figuratively, fresh manna to sustain the Lord's people. Every day we recognize God is making us hopeful and God is making us patient, knowing that He's loving and waiting on His love to finally and fully be revealed. But God is also, by His love, leading us to good work. He's doing something good in our life. In the meantime, let the favor, verse 17, of our Lord, of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. God's love leads us to good works. And God in His providence has brought you to this place, to a place of humility and through His judgment and as a recipient of His love, in order that He might establish the work of your hands. I think it's a beautiful picture of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. It is the work of our hands, and yet it's God that establishes the work of our hands. It's God who is working, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, His mighty power through us as we toil for Him. He establishes the work of our hands. You know, you take all of these elements, and each and every one of you probably in each and every one of these categories has all kinds of examples in your minds and in your hearts. And, and there have been times where you've spent long seasons where all that you experienced was the smile of providence. There have been other times in your life where you've experienced a hard or a severe providence difficulty from God that in the moment and even now just doesn't make sense to you how and why God could or would use something like that in your life. Now, I don't have the answer for every single thing that's happened in every single life, but I can tell you this, I do believe that God is good, that God is love. And any time we've ever questioned that, all we have to do is look back to Calvary, look back to the cross where God fully and finally demonstrated in the clearest possible terms that He loves us, that He's for us. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men with whom I am pleased. And so in the meantime, sometimes we have to sit back. We have to recognize through all of life, God in His providence is leading us by His love, but also God is leading us to His love. Where finally and fully a day is coming where He will wipe away the tears from every eye, where He will make all things right and all things new. And He didn't do this in a cheap way. He didn't do it in a free way. 
He did it in an exceedingly costly way by the blood of His very own Son. God is with us. God is for us. And you take all of these elements that that happen in our life as we walk patiently in God's providential care, and we must be reminded when we can't know what's going on, when we don't see all that God's doing, that God is doing something bigger. God is doing something better. God is putting something together. You might even say God is baking a cake. I want to offer an invitation this morning. If you've never put your trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time, I'd love to talk with you and pray with you this morning about what it means for you to be a Christian. If you'll turn from your sins and repentance and turn to Jesus Christ in faith, I believe He will save you. Second of all, you may be a Christian. You may say, Pastor, I need to pray over these things. I've not been walking uh, in faith in God's providential care like I should. This altar is open for you, and I'd love to pray with you today. And finally, you may be looking for a church home. I'd love to talk to you today about what it means for you to be a member here at First Baptist Church. After this prayer, I want to invite you to come. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you so much for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for this opportunity we have today to gather with your people, Lord, to be reminded of your providential care. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have to hear your word and be changed by it today. God, I pray that you would move in the hearts of your people and for those who don't yet know you today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.